0: The ladybird is a beautiful and cherished insect. One of the few insects, I think, that seems to have broadly gotten away with being an insect. We tend to like ladybirds. Why? Is it their bright coloration, The bold, cheerful colours of these domed beetles? Is it the simplicity of their bodies? That counts for something, I think. The intricacies of arthropod forms can present as otherworldly and obscure. All splayed legs and ridged, segmented bodies. Arthropod bodies are armoured whilst ours are soft, and yet, grotesquely, their armoured bodies possess great fragility. The ladybird, though, is simple. A cheerful dome with dots. It's an insect which ambles, quite amiably, up a stem, offering its dots for us to count. Its little feet poke out from under its body, seemingly turned out, giving its movement a certain waddling quality. These ideas are cultural and subjective. In a previous episode, I posed a thought experiment where I asked you to imagine what your preconceptions would be if someone told you their mate Spider was coming out. Conclusion was that someone with the nickname Spider would be an edgy, possibly criminal character. Flick blade, leather jacket, slide trombone. Let's try that thought experiment again. If you're going to meet someone nicknamed Ladybird, what are your assumptions? That they are twee? whimsical, a felt waistcoat and a beret? But then perhaps you should expect a face predator. After all, that's what ladybirds are voracious predators. Charming to us, maybe, but An absolute horror show if you're an aphid. Let's take a look at ladybirds. As with any creature, loved or loathed, a world of intricacy lies behind our initial impression, our cultural vision, of what a ladybird is. In this episode, I'll cast an eye over their cultural heft, but there's a whole lot more to know as we demystify this fascinating animal, or rather, family of animals. Luckily, we get to speak with a true authority. After the musical break, we'll meet with Dr Helen Roy, ladybird expert and head of the Royal Entomological Society to discover the incredible overlooked complexity of these animals. Morning, Helen. How are you today?
1: Yeah, I'm good, thank you. Very good. It's cold here, but it's 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 a bright and sunny day.
0: Yeah, it's perishing here. I've put the radiator on, which I'm loath to do, but never mind. Thank you so much for agreeing to talk to me this morning about ladybirds. We're gonna have a little ladybird chat. Would it be okay to start off? You've, you've had a, a very impressive career in these fields, but what is your personal and professional relationship with with invertebrates?
1: So I'm I'm an ecologist at the UK Centre for Ecology and Hydrology, and I'm also president of the Royal Entomological Society. And um, I've been working on insects in one way or another for many decades. And I'm particularly interested in the ways in which environmental change affects the distribution and abundance of insects.
0: Sounds like a simple question, but I kind of like to start with these simple questions. What exactly is a ladybird?
1: So a ladybird is a beetle. They're small to medium-sized beetles. There's about 5,000 species worldwide. And um, across the UK, we have about 47 species. And I say about because there's new ones arriving and there's one... Um, to which there's some doubt as to whether or not it's um, established here yet so that the number goes up and down a little bit um, but there's quite a few some of them are very brightly colored and they're the ones that people tend to think of as iconic ladybirds but there's also quite a number which are quite tiny often sort of brown or black little hairy ladybirds
0: and what was it that led you to working with ladybirds so extensively in particular
1: I've always been fascinated by the natural world. And um, as a a young child and teenager, I was very much um, spent my time looking for various insects, but also small mammals and bat watching and bird watching as well. And um, throughout my degree and then into my PhD, I became increasingly interested in insects. And throughout my PhD, I was really fortunate to be able to work on ladybirds and some other insects that are predators of um, pest insects, such as aphids. And um, I just find them absolutely captivating. I find them captivating for so many different reasons. I I think that their behavior is absolutely fascinating. I think their diversity is incredible. I think the roles um, that they play within our ecosystems are just absolutely amazing and actually vital to us. So there's just so many reasons why I just really enjoy working with ladybirds. and, And they're so beautiful as well.
0: Now, you kind of classic ladybird is the seven-spotted ladybird, I think, be fair to say, which is the, the famous bright red ladybird with black spots. And as a child, I remember differentiating ladybirds was quite an easy thing to do because ladybirds had quite simple variables in the sense that some of them had different numbers of spots, some of them had different colours. And we had this vague suspicion that the ones that weren't red and black were poisonous. We were vaguely frightened of them. When we see ladybirds with with different spots and different colours, you've mentioned kind of the number of species we have. When we see them with different spots and different colours, are we looking at different species?
1: in some cases we are and in some cases we aren't and I think that um, you're quite right that most people could go into their gardens or out into a park and they'd be able to point at something and say that's a ladybird um, it might be more difficult for them to be able to identify exactly which species of ladybird it is I think you're quite right as well that the seven spot ladybird is really an iconic ladybird for us in the UK with its um, bright red coloration and its seven spots including the the seventh one which is kind of just behind um the head
0: right. and the
1: seven spot ladybird doesn't vary very much at all in terms of its color patterns but there are other species that are so highly variable that you would look at one individual and think it was a different species to another individual um, the 10 spot ladybird is a really excellent example um, of that so the sort of typical form is orange with 10 spots um, But it also comes in a sort of black color form with these sort of red bars just behind um, the shoulders, so to speak. And um, another form looks like a little checkered board. It's incredibly variable. And so actually the one that looks a little bit like a checkerboard can also look very like a 14 spot ladybird. So it could be very confusing um, to identify ladybirds, but actually... What is wonderful is they are quite an easy group to um, learn to identify quite rapidly. So once you have a few um, little tricks up your sleeve, so to speak, you can um, work out which is which. And for example, separating out the 14-spot ladybird and the 10-spot ladybird, it's really important to look at this little um, plate behind the head called the pronotum. And the cuddle pattern on that is very distinctive and it doesn't vary very much between individuals.
0: So aside from the kind of the variables of colour and spots, ladybirds seem to be pretty uniform in their shape, these sort of little smallish dome-shaped beetles. And apart from when I thought them poisonous, I always sort of assumed they lived quite similar lives. They predate aphids, they knock about. And I was wondering, does that diversity we see in their colouration, does that marry up with any kind of diversity in behaviour?
1: It does. So not all of them are predators. So there are some that feed on mildews, for instance. The orange ladybird feeds on mildews on the surfaces of leaves. And then there are other species that are plant feeders. So the really beautiful little 24 spot ladybird, which is a, a really kind of deep red colour with black spots. And it has a sort of slight fuzziness um, over the surface of it. Um, and that's a plant feeding ladybird. So they have different um, lifestyles and indeed even within the predators some feed on aphids some feed on scale insects some have much broader diets than others so they're they're all really quite variable and actually the way in which they look can also have um be affected by environmental conditions, for instance. So there's some really interesting studies on the harlequin ladybird, which is this new species that arrived in the UK and was first recorded in 2004. And it originates in Asia and was introduced into many countries as a biological control agent of aphids. And it's one of the really colour pattern variable ladybirds. And what seems to be apparent is that if it pupates at colder temperatures, the spotty form of it, the black spots tend to be quite a bit bigger than if it um, pupates at, temp- at warmer temperatures. Sorry. And if it pupates at warmer temperatures, it can almost appear to have no spots at all. So there are ways in which that sort of colour pattern polymorphism seems to be, um, allows them to adapt to, to varying conditions.
0: Alongside bumblebees and butterflies, I think ladybirds are the preeminent insect of childhood. These are all colourful, apparently simple creatures, easily spotted, as it were, easily simplified, iconic. A painted page folded, a butterfly. Yellow with black stripes, a bumblebee. Red with black spots, a ladybird. Whilst many beetles skulk through the soil, the ladybird presents itself, plainly, out in the open, bright and bald. The ladybird patterns children's coats and lunchboxes, and their regulars of the Key Stage 1 maths lesson. I'm convinced that our fondness for the ladybird is all in part to childhood familiarity, which is, perhaps, encouraging. So many entomologically minded people speak of the importance of demystifying invertebrates to the young. Ladybirds prove that insects can be figured as charming early doors, and that this acceptance carries through into adulthood. There's a question children often ask about ladybirds. My own class asked it recently. Why lady? Are they all ladies? Well, let's look at this. It's an interesting little tale. Whilst we're at it, we'll take a look at some common names for ladybirds around the world, all of which tend towards being rather charming. No, they're not all ladies. The name ladybird is probably religious in origin. They are Our Lady's Bird, and Our Lady is Mary, Mother of Christ, often depicted in red. Religious associations are present in other languages, and here you may have to forgive my pronunciation, The ladybird is variously known as Marienkafer in German, Mari in Dutch, and Marikita in Spanish, all Mary's Beetle or thereabouts. In Swedish they are Hemelskia Nikel, keys of heaven, in French, better bon Dieu, God's good animal. In some parts of Italy, Borina del Signor, something like Shepherdess of Christ. It's been suggested by some that the ladybird had significance in pre Christian religion and can count itself among the many pagan symbols. Adopted by Christianity, it seems to have had an association with good luck. To see one was, perhaps, a sort of blessing. Interestingly, there are also a wealth of cow associations in ladybird common names. In English, lady cow was served as an alternative to ladybird. And in Russia, Boshka Karovka translates as God's little cow. Why cows then? Well, presumably, it's the pattern of spots. But thanks to my mate Dan for writing in, in advance of this episode, to point out a Kentish variation, Mary Gold. Again, evoking Mary, clad in bright colours. I remember some some years ago now, kind of when I was getting back into insects, I saw these creatures on a salt box, a yellow salt box. And they were, I later discovered, they were ladybird larvae. Specifically, I think they were holoquins. And something interesting that I noticed about them or that I suspect about them, I may be wrong, is that compared to a lot of other insect larvae and beetle larvae, they seem relatively adult in their behaviour. So they they have quite well-defined legs. They feed on aphids. Or they, you've just said that not all ladybirds feed on aphids, but the ones that I saw certainly did. And there's this sense that when insects undergo a complete transformation, part of the advantage that's giving them is that the larval form and the adult form aren't competing, that they're living very different lifestyles. And I wondered is this the case with the ladybirds do the do the larvae and the adults are they in competition and are there any major ways in which their lifestyles do differ
1: see so, yeah you're quite right often when there is that sort of larval stage the larvae often feed in a different way to the adults and that's very apparent when we think about caterpillars and adult butterflies but with the, the ladybirds you're quite right the harlequin ladybird both the adults and the larvae feed on aphids but the thing about with the larvae and um, the adults of the ladybirds there's very many ways in which they try and reduce their competition and actually i think there's some really fascinating behaviors that the female ladybirds can show in terms of ensuring that they um, lay their eggs so that their larvae will have some a really good supply of food going forward and there's some fascinating studies done quite a long time ago on two spot ladybirds and they showed that the um the 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 female ladybirds will assess how many aphids there are before laying their eggs and also whether or not the colony of aphids is about to collapse or not so they'll use signals such as the number of shed skins of the aphids the amount of honeydew that the aphids have produced to weigh up is this worth me laying my eggs here or not is there going to be a colony still around to sustain my larvae um, once they've hatched out and um, I just think that's incredible just absolutely remarkable and then it's probably important to remember that once those adult ladybirds have reproduced they die so um, for many right. of our ladybirds in britain the seven spot ladybird for instance they, they only have one generation per year so when we start to see the adults emerging from the winter time in the spring they will then start to reproduce and once they've reproduced they will then die and so we have this point of the year where it's mainly just larvae that are around and the adults um, aren't there so much at all.
0: Not so much this year but in, in the past in my flat we've had a tendency to in the window frames have these big swarms of ladybirds doing what I assumed was overwintering and so some ladybirds presumably are lasting more than one year.
1: So all ladybirds will overwinter Um, as adults in the UK so they go into this dormant phase but if we just think about the seven spot ladybird for instance in Mm. the spring when the Um, laid, and then through the sort of early summer when the adults when the the egg is laid it's been through its larval development pupated and then there are these new adults um, in the early summer it's those new adults that are then overwintering through to the next year so they they can live you near about 13 months but then then that's about it and then we have a few species in the UK who can keep reproducing and the harlequin ladybird and the two spot ladybirds are examples of that so in the summer months when we have that first generation of adults they will start to reproduce and there will be a second generation of adults and in some cases with the harlequin a partial third generation but it's then usually the second generation that is then overwintering Um, and maybe some of the first generation who managed to survive that time as well
0: And, and when they are overwintering they seem to be doing so in in groups. I wondered is this is this an example of cooperative behavior on their part or is this just you know the places that are good to hibernate are good for all of them and so they all end up in the same place? Is there any sense of cooperation going on there?
1: I think it's most likely the the latter that they're just finding a good place and then they're aggregating Mm -hmm. um, because of that but people, again, have looked into why would they form these aggregations and not just in terms of um, because they're finding the, the same site. There does seem to be something around the sort of microclimate that they create by huddling together in that way. Um, also, it's thought that maybe with these brightly colored ones, that when they come together, they give this much bigger sort of show of red and black, which is, of course, their warning colorations um, for um predators to say that they don't taste very nice Mm. um so you know there are some advantages um i i wouldn't describe it as sort of truly cooperative um but there, there are some advantages for them just coming into that into the aggregation and most ladybirds do aggregate um some of them quite small aggregations. And as people have seen with the Harlequin ladybirds can be really large aggregations of hundreds of individuals in window frame.
0: Right, so we'll talk about the Harlequin in a second because that's a, a fascinating subject in and of itself, but I wanted to quite selfishly ask you to put my mind at ease about something that I've been, uh, a kind of ladybird related moment in my life. So when I was, when I was a kid playing outside, I was handling a ladybird. It was sort of on my finger or whatever. And I, I didn't know what I did to it. I must have been manipulating it in, in some way. But it it produced a kind of a yellow liquid on my hand. And I remember thinking, oh, I've I just killed this ladybird. It's it's bleeding. I've I've hurt it. And I decided then, I know I've hurt it. I know I've done it some harm. But the line that I'm going to pursue with my parents when I report this back is that it's laid an egg on my hand. That's going to be my kind of... My way of excusing to them, even though they're not here right now, that this ladybird has, has produced a yellow slime, has has done this. That's my excuse. Um, I wondered if you could sort of help me out. Do you have any sense of, did I hurt that ladybird? Can you put my mind at ease about that?
1: So what you probably did was, uh, that ladybird reflex bled, that's what it did. So when um, ladybirds are threatened in one way or another, so for example, if a bird or indeed if a human comes by and disturbs them, one of their defenses is to to reflex bleed. So essentially they exude that yellowy substance that you saw um, through various joints. And it can seem quite spectacular, quite a large amount of reflex blood um, that they Mm. can produce. And that substance takes, quite horrible. So, for example, if a bird in flight was to take um, a ladybird, which sometimes swallows and swifts and house martins do, for instance, the, the ladybird would reflex bleed and then there are observations of the birds then spitting out the ladybirds because of that distasteful substance. The ladybirds are packed full with a chemi- lots of chemicals that sort of form this slightly and mildly toxic um, cocktail. And um, if anyone's ever, if you were to smell that substance that they produced on your hands afterwards, it, it, it would have, it's not a terribly unpleasant smell, but it's not very pleasant either. And that's just their way of defending themselves.
0: That's a way off, actually, I've genuinely thought about that quite a lot over the last few years. So I'm, I'm pleased to hear that I probably didn't do it any desperate harm. The ladybird plays a starring role in an English nursery rhyme with a few interesting variations. Again, we note the familiarity of the ladybird tied into our folk tradition in a way that cannot be said to be true of the carrion beetle or the diving beetle neither of which have a troubling nursery rhyme to their name. Ladybird, ladybird, fly away home your house is on fire and your children are gone all except one and her name is Anne and she hid under the baking pan. Now this might not be the rhyme you know as with so many old rhymes there exist a number of versions that often display regional variations in the way the ladybird is named. York's variation runs Lady cow, lady cow, fly thy way home, Thy house is on fire, thy children are gone, All but one that lives under a stone, Fly thee home, lady cow, ere it be gone. Another variation, possibly of Norfolk, Bishy, bishy, barney bee, Tell me when your wedding be, If it be tomorrow day, Take your wings and fly away. The rhyme also exists with an additional couplet, Flight of the east, flight of the west, Fly of them that I love best. Bishy, by the way, probably refers to a bishop, typically dressed in red. Emily Jane Bronte, the famous writer, provides her own variation. Ladybird, ladybird, fly away home. Night is approaching and sunset has come. Felt but unseen, the damp dewdrops fall. This is the close of a still summer day. Ladybird, ladybird, haste, fly away. Interestingly, Emily Bronte's sister, Charlotte Bronte, refers to the nursery rhyme in Jane Eyre, and in doing so, gives us another curious name variation when she writes, that was only a lady clock child, flying away home. Meanwhile, in Germany, we have an analog, this time referring to a maybug or a cockchafer. In this, "Mikelferchen," "Mikelferchen, Mikelferchen, fliege weg, dein Hausgen brennt, deine Mutter weint, dein Vater sitzt auf der Schwelle, fliege Himmel aus der Hölle." Translated, something like, "Maybug, maybug, fly away. Your house is burning. Your mother is weeping. Your father is sitting in the doorway. Fly from hell and into heaven." Why then is the ladybird's home burning? One thought is that the song is a song of warning sung by farmers before burning the straw stubble left after a harvest. Are the farmers appreciative of the ladybird for their agricultural value in eliminating aphids and thus warning them? Or is this deference to the ladybird of a more religious, ancient, superstitious practice? If you know any other versions of the poem or have another name for the ladybird please do email grubbinginthefilth at gmail.com Americans needn't remind me that you call it a ladybug. We know, and I don't mean to have a go but in this instance... You've really dropped the ball. Let's have a chat about the National Ladybird Survey. So we mentioned IDing ladybirds and things like that earlier. Could you tell us a little bit about the the Ladybird Survey and give us a sense of why recording ladybird sightings is important?
1: Yes, so... We're really fortunate um, in the UK to have many, many different recording schemes and societies. There's more than 80, so all kinds of different insect groups, birds, plants, mammals. There's something there for everyone to get involved with. And biological recording is very simple. It's just about um, saying what you see, where you see it, when you see it, and and who you are. And so these recording schemes are, many of them, hosted by the Biological Records Centre, which is part of the UK Centre for Ecology and Hydrology. And the Ladybird Survey is indeed one of those. And many of them were established in the early 1970s, although they were constantly um, having new recording schemes coming online as well, as people develop an interest in in a new taxonomic group that hasn't got a scheme existing already. And the ladybird survey there was one of the earlier schemes, so it was established in the the 1970s under the name the Cox and LLD recording scheme. Cox and LLD being the scientific name for the the family of ladybirds, and um, it's been uh, led by many many amazing people over that time. And in the 1980s, um, Mike Majerus took on leading it um, through Cambridge University. And um, he began to see the opportunity to sort of popularizing um, the recording scheme. So, prior to that, it had been very much receiving records from sort of amateur experts, people who already knew Beatles very, very well and um, were providing that information. So, in the 1980s, um, Mike started to work with various sort of youth groups and um, wildlife. Um, organizations um, to promote recording of ladybirds and it's really gone from strength to strength and the arrival of the harlequin ladybird and the first record in 2004 inspired um, us to think about putting the ladybird survey online and at the time I was working with Mike Majuris and so we worked together um, with someone called um, Trevor James and also Pete Brown who still um, leads the survey alongside me to create um, an online platform for recording ladybirds and we We did a lot of promotion, a lot of um, exhibitions and going out to agricultural shows, talking in the media, writing articles. And um, we still do as much of that as possible to encourage everyone to get involved with recording um, ladybirds because it's it's really quite straightforward. And the data is incredibly valuable for addressing so many different questions.
0: If people do want to get involved, how would they do so?
1: So if they visit our Ladybird Survey website, so it's um, ladybird-survey.org and it's within a larger website for um, Coleoptera, for beetle recording. And um, they can take a look there. There's lots of resources. Another um, thing they could do is download the iRecord app or the iRecord Ladybirds app. And um, then they can use that on their their smartphones so that when they're out and about, they can just um, record their sightings very, very simply. So actually yesterday I was out walking and found a seven spot ladybird just overwintering and curled up in a little bramble leaf. And um, I used my iRecord app to record it then and there. And it's really exciting to think that literally you're out there on a walk. And you put that into your smartphone and that record enters straight into the the database and is there ready for someone to use. And I just think that's a really exciting way of sharing biodiversity data.
0: Well, you've mentioned that this is data that is used. It's not just, you know, we fancy knowing about the ladybirds. So in what way is this data important? In what way is it used?
1: It's used in lots of different ways. And indeed, that's the case across all of the recording schemes and societies. So it's used for research purposes, for increasing our understanding of the ecology of these um, amazing um, groups of plants and animals. Um, It's also used to address um, very specific questions around, for example, we were able to use the Ladybird survey data set to look at what effects was the harlequin ladybird having, if any, on um, native ladybird species. We were able to use the distribution data sets that we hold um, to address that question. Um, The data feeds into government indicators, for instance, on biodiversity. So we can have long-term biodiversity trends and report sort of the state of the UK's um, nature. So there are many, many different ways, and it can be used um, for local purposes, for people to get a better understanding of what it is they have in their own um, locality. Um, I, there are many, many different ways in which that data is really valuable and useful. And and who knows, going forward into the future, there'll be ways in which we're not even thinking about how we might use it, um, and it, it will be useful.
0: I'd encourage anyone then to, like, I will do so myself, to go and join up and to get involved in the in these recording schemes. You've mentioned the, the harlequin ladybird, sort of the, the elephant in the room in the in ladybird chat, I guess, and it's relevance to these recording schemes and things. So the harlequin ladybird is, and I might use the wrong word here, it's an invasive species, I'm going to say, and its population size is growing to the detriment of native species. How has that shift occurred? Because you said it's, it arrived in 2004. What about the harlequins allowed it to to boom in population so prodigiously?
1: So you're you're quite right, it is an invasive non-native species. So that means the non-native species part means it's been moved from one part of the world to another directly by humans, and in this case introduced as a biological control agent of pest insects. And we use the term invasive to mean that it's spread very rapidly and um, is likely to be having some kind of impact as a consequence. And um, when we looked um, at the impact that it was having on native species, we looked at eight native species and we saw that seven out of eight were showing distribution declines that were very strongly correlated with the arrival of the harlequin ladybird. So it not only can outcompete some of the native ladybirds that are also predators, but it will also eat them. So it has a very, very broad diet. So it will feed on many different ladybirds in terms of how it's become so successful it has many attributes that make it extremely successful it has a really high reproductive rate so it's one of the species that can get multiple generations in per per year it's also a very very good predator so when it's feeding and foraging on aphids it's very effective at doing so and um, more so than some other species It's quite a large ladybird and it's very, very well um, defended chemically. Um, So the sort of that chemical cocktail that it has within it is a bit more potent than many of the other ladybirds. And some of our other research has shown that um, it's arrived in the UK and escaped its natural enemies. So some of the parasites that attack some of our native ladybirds um, really struggle to attack the harlequin ladybird.
0: That's a fascinating notion. So, and perhaps parasites that affect it existed more in its in its native countries.
1: That's right. So there are species that will attack it back in its its native range, and some of those are very closely related to the the species that we see here. Um, but nevertheless, actually, it is a species that doesn't get attacked mm. so much because of this really um, toxic chemistry that it has. This might seem
0: like a bit of a silly question. We'll talk about it a bit more in a second. In some senses, but. The proliferation of the harlequin ladybird and the decline of native species as such, from your point of view as a, as a scientist, is that a problem?
1: So I think it's a problem for lots of reasons. And, and, and I don't, not just um, as a scientist, but mm. as someone who's passionate about ladybirds, I enjoy seeing all of the ladybirds. And it, and it is sad to think that, for example, the two-spot ladybird is a species that we we struggle to see now, and um, it's it seems to have really declined in response to the harlequin ladybird's arrival. Um, but I think you know. The Harlequin ladybird isn't an, is an amazing ladybird. It's a beautiful ladybird um, as well, and it's a really effective aphid predator. So it could be having some benefits within um, agricultural systems, for instance. But I think you know, when we think about the diversity of species, it's almost sort of like an insurance policy and in providing resilience to the system. Because each of those ladybirds, even if they're all predators, they behave slightly differently. So some are more able to forage early in the morning, some will forage later on. Um, through the day um, some of them occur earlier in the season some of them are around later in the season so they're sort of like this magnificent jigsaw of all taking their little part and um, so you know when we get a sort of super dominance of one species behaving in uh, one particular way, I think, then we can have concerns overall for the resilience of that system.
0: Well, it's interesting that you you talk about the harlequin ladybird in sort of. I think it'd be easy for certain people to discuss them in terms of, you know, they are the enemy kind of thing, and in the way that some people do with grey squirrels and and whatnot. And in discussing invasive species and communicating these ideas, it seems like there are some some kind of challenges. So one thing I, I read you talking about is. The language we use around it and the way that that language can be quite emotive so the mm-hmm. the language we use in ecology to discuss the idea of native and non-native species it does create a kind of i don't know a- adversarial atmosphere almost it the the idea of from a cultural point of view i feel like it it can feel uncomfortable to people having a go at something for being non-native and things like this and i wondered could you kind of clarify with these terms and things do you think that is an issue
1: so i think that the when we think about non native species and if you think about them um across britain we have more than 2000 non native species that are established and that means that they they have um sustained populations um within britain only a small fraction of those cause any problems whatsoever. So about 15% um, go on to cause um, some problems. And some of those species will also have benefits to us. So I think what's important is to embrace that sort of complexity of the situation. And I think what's important, why it's an important area to study is because some of these damaging species that do occur, the invasive, the subset of non-native species that are considered to be invasive and damaging, there are things that we can do to prevent their arrival in the first place. And so that's why it's an important distinction to make. So I think it's important to um, reflect that there are many, many non-native species that are either not causing any problems whatsoever, or indeed maybe having some benefits to us and indeed may have been introduced because of the benefits that we can get from them. But those ones that are damaging can be really, really problematic and they can be problematic to biodiversity and to ecosystems, um, to human health and well-being, to our economies. And it's about understanding the distinction between those different um, groups of species. And for those which are damaging, to do something about them before they actually arrive. And we've been doing lots of work to make predictions around which could be the next invasive non-native species that could arrive here and cause problems and what could be done to prevent their arrival in the first place. Because once they're here, that's very much the case with the Harlequin ladybird, There was nothing that could be done about the Harlequin Ladybird. It spread at about 100 kilometers per year, um, and there are no control strategies that can be used for the Harlequin Ladybird that would not affect other species. So, preventing its arrival would have been the most sensible thing to do. Um, So, I think. Yeah, it's unfortunate that it can get um, tangled up in um, emotive language, but I think it's about communicating very clearly from the ecology and from using the definitions very, very clearly and remembering that many of the non-native species are not problematic. It's just this very small subset that are.
0: You mentioned that the harlequin it, is, as far as I can tell, it's, it's basically here to stay, Right.
1: Yeah, absolutely. It's here to stay. I mean, I think that what we will see is we'll see the numbers going up and down in um, in years. We'll see the spread continuing. So at the moment, there aren't so many um, records from Scotland. Um, I think it's very likely that we'll see more records as it advances northward. And I think the other interesting aspect to consider around invasive non-native species is their interactions with other um big environmental change drivers. So for example, climate change, land use change. So all of these things interact with one another. And um, it's important for us to begin to take on board those those ways in which they do interact. So as the climate warms, for example, um, there will be insects that will be able to thrive at in more northern locations than has been the case to date.
0: To clarify on that note of the harlequin, so it being that it's it's an invasive species, it's it has caused a decline in our native populations. If someone is knocking about and they see a Harlequin ladybird, they've, they've learned to ID this, this animal. Presumably, you know, someone who thinks, oh, I'm, I better kill it, it's a Harlequin. Presumably then there's nothing to be gained from that. That's not a thing that's worth doing. It's not a thing you would encourage
1: no not at all so we really strongly encourage people not to kill harlequin ladybirds they can be so easily confused with other species and it will have no overall effect on the population of harlequin ladybirds and um we've yeah just really strongly urge people to just record their sightings of the harlequin ladybird because it really has informed our research um around non-native species and for instance um Another species of concern, another insect, actually, the um, yellow-legged or Asian hornet, Vespa velatina. Um, The alert systems that have been developed for surveillance of that species have been based around the harlequin ladybird. So we're learning a lot from the harlequin ladybird, but there's nothing that can be done about it.
0: Well, I was going to ask, when we think about non-native species, it's a study that seems to be of great import. And we know that ecosystems are changing due to climate change due to human intervention. Are there, are there some lessons that need to be learned when we talk about and when we think about non-native species?
1: Yeah, so I think we can all play our part. We can all play a part in terms of surveillance and monitoring and sending in records and sightings of concern um, of um, different species. And there's lots of information on the Non-Native Species Secretariat website that people can go to and take a look at um, the species that maybe they could looking out for. But there's also aspects around biosecurity, and of course we're all limited in how much we're travelling at the moment, um, but in other times when people are moving around the world, just checking their luggage before they go somewhere and before they come back from somewhere to check that they haven't got any hitchhikers with them, um making sure that their shoes and their boots are very clean, that they don't have seeds stuck in their socks or in the turn-ups of their trousers, and taking some just very sensible biosecurity um, measures. And then also thinking about what it is they're growing within their gardens and how they're um, disposing of plants, for instance. And there's a whole campaign called Be Plant Wise, um, which gives lots of guidance to people around composting plants, not throwing, for example, um, <clears throat> Plants from ponds just out into um, other waterways, just to be really careful about the ways in which um, they're moving species either within their local region or indeed further around the world when um, they're traveling
0: but it's a a fascinating notion I, it hadn't really even occurred to me some of these things about you know seeds on your shoes and things, of course it makes sense. Finally, on that kind of ecological note. I'm fascinated by this notion of horizon scanning, possibly just because it's such a exciting phrase. It's a phrase that seems to indicate looking to the future to me. And so maybe it's a nice place to end. So you give us a sense of what we mean when we talk about horizon scanning in relation to, to invasive species and things
1: you're quite right, it is really exciting. And it is all about looking to the future and thinking about what can we do to make a difference. And the horizon scanning is about predicting um, threats that may occur in the future. And that then allows people to think about ways in which um, they can mitigate the risk um, from those threats. And um, Horizon scanning for um, the invasive non-native species. There's fantastic data holdings from all around the world, and we can think about which species would be climatically suited and which would find their way here quite easily. And then think about what kind of impacts might they have if they did arrive here. So it is really exciting. It is about looking to the future and it is about informing change to prevent some of those arrivals um, happening.
0: I'm glad you think it's exciting. It's, It's it's nice that talking about kind of the future of our ecosystems and things isn't all doom and gloom. And that it is something that is, you know, people can be making positive steps and that positive steps are being made. Cause I think it can be quite easy just to think of, to, to fall into the attitude of, you know, the planet is done for let's stay in our houses.
1: Yeah, no, I think you're quite right. My daughter and I actually were chatting about this on a walk yesterday and she was um, sharing her concerns around climate change. And I think, you know, we all know that there are, we're in an unprecedented time of environmental change. And we know that we are playing a big part in that. And therefore, we also know that we can play a big part in trying to address and take on board the need for transformative change so that we slow down some of the rates of change that we're we're seeing. So I'm Just think it's really exciting to think about the ways and the solutions that we can move forward with. And um, I think the whole area of Earth optimism is extremely important because it is easy to get overwhelmed and it is easy to think about the gloom. And I think, particularly as we are in a pandemic, it's not surprising that we can Mm -hmm. feel quite overwhelmed but there are things that every individual can do to make a difference and um, however small whether it be recording the Insects that are visiting flowers in their gardens and sharing that data, or whether it be recording um, birds that come to their balcony, or going for a walk in the park and documenting the ladybirds they see, or looking out for non-native species, enriching their environment with things like little bee hotels or small ponds, everyone can make a difference, and um, I think that's what it's all about.
0: Yeah, that's a wonderful note to end on. So, thank you so much for for agreeing to speak with me about ladybirds and. Ecology slightly more broadly, I guess. Um it's been an absolute pleasure. So thank you so much, Helen.
1: Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure talking to you too.
0: Thank you again to Helen Roy for agreeing to speak with me and for sharing her extensive expertise on these fabulous animals. Everyone has a base understanding of ladybirds. Everyone's seen them knocking about. So this has been one of those episodes I enjoy because it allows me, and I hope you to examine something familiar with a new level of complexity. I think they're realizing How much you don't know about something is an exciting thing. And in talking with Helen about invasive species and the changing nature of our ladybird populations, I'm reminded of something important. That nature, or the natural world, is not this fixed thing, a solid aspect of our world which we can choose to engage with or to ignore. It's a dynamic, dynamic, ongoing and ever-changing thing, inconceivably vast in its interconnectedness and its strangeness. Whether or not we choose to engage with nature is an odd idea. Two things are simultaneously true here. We affect nature and we should consider ourselves custodians of it to some degree. We should do our best to protect the natural world from our capacity to distort and upend it. At the same time, it's not something that's separate from us and we do well to remember that we are of it and within it. Viewing nature as somehow separate from ourselves is a dangerous game. I hope you come away from this episode with some fresh perspectives on the familiar. Keep an eye out for our ladybird friends, glimmering little lipstick smudges, little thumbprints of colour, and yet so so much more. Rubbing the filth is written and produced by me, Tom Sharp, with music by Will Hatton. A little recommendation, if you're keen on ladybirds and want to learn more. The Hin Wings and Bloodlust podcast is entirely devoted to ladybirds as a great place to continue your ladybird learning. Well, thanks again to Dr. Helen Roy. Social media is a ladybird and I am an aphid. torn apart, weak and helpless. You can find Grubbing in the Filth at GITF podcast on Twitter and at Grubbing in the Filth on Instagram. You can also email Filth at gmail.com. Until next time.